When it started, I was 14 years old. A lot of people were kidnapped, killed. This is Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from the Harriman Institute at Columbia University. I'm Masha Udenseva-Brenner. I'm Tanya Kotelnikova, and I came from Ukraine to study human rights at Columbia University. Tanya is just 22 years old, and she arrived in New York and started the human rights program at Columbia last September. She was born and raised in Khorlevka, a small city about 40 miles north of Donetsk that's been controlled by Russian-backed separatists since 2014. Today, you'll hear her story, which starts in her hometown. It's industrial city. We have a lot of factories. Air pollution is very high. But in general, what comes to my mind, the people is really very nice. She grew up with her parents in a nine-story Soviet-era apartment building in a quiet neighborhood, a 15-minute walk from the city center. It was surrounded by nature, a lot of trees, plants around our home. I spent a lot of happy moments. A lot of those moments were shared with her grandmother, who lived just outside the city and with whom Tanya spent a lot of time. She loved me a lot. We had this special connection. I used to come to my grandmother's home and she opened this main door and she was so happy to see you. And you see it, you feel it, you just have no doubts about that. Overall, Tanya felt loved and life was good. I think I was really a happy child. I had very high marks at my school. I attended some extracurricular activities, organized events. So it was really nice time for me. But then, during her early adolescence, things around Tanya started to shift. First, at the end of 2013, when huge demonstrations erupted on Kyiv's Maidan Nezalezhnosti, protesting then-President Viktor Yanukovych's refusal to sign an EU association agreement. The demonstrations became known as the Revolution of Dignity. Protesters ousted Yanukovych, signaling to the world that Ukrainians preferred to associate with Western Europe rather than with Russia. But the revolution wasn't celebrated in Tanya's hometown. What I remember is that around us, in local newspapers, on TV as well, this revolution was depicted like something bad, like international organizations or states tried to influence Ukraine. Tanya didn't believe the propaganda. She'd gone to a very patriotic pro-Ukrainian school that had taught her to love her country. That made her think critically about everything she was hearing. But the people around her had some pretty anti-revolutionary sentiments. I remember one person even said that these people in Kyiv are trying to, to seize the power and they will destroy a lot of places. And that, from our territory, will pay money to restore. Yet, even with all this talk, Tanya did not feel that anyone around her wanted to be a part of Russia instead of Ukraine. What I saw in my childhood, a lot of people really loved Ukraine and they want to be a part of Ukraine. They don't want to be in Russia. Around the spring of 2014, not long after Russia annexed Crimea, Tanya's city started changing even more drastically. One day in mid-April, Tanya walked home past the Khorlevka police station and saw a huge, angry crowd gathered around the squat, four-story building. 
mainly their men all dark and gray some of them in handmade black masks and you can see just their eyes and they were all around this building and they started to shout to throw some things to windows and so on they were throwing rocks and the police were throwing smoke grenades back there was yelling a lot of commotion at that point the building was still under ukrainian control and Tanya saw the chief of police, Andriy Krishenko, emerge from the lobby. He shouted that it was a Ukrainian police station and would always be a Ukrainian police station. But then a man from the crowd climbed up to the roof, took down the Ukrainian flag, and raised a Russian one in its place. Krishenko, the police chief, followed the man to the roof and tore down the Russian flag, putting the Ukrainian one back. After that, this crowd became very angry. The man who'd put up the Russian flag fell off the roof. Maybe he was killed or injured. They found and the Krushin guy. He was beaten. The events of that day are on video, and there's footage of Krushinko being ushered into an ambulance, his face covered in blood. The pro-Russian protesters trying to get him out to beat him more. Krushinko survived. He ended up leaving Hordlivka and eventually serving as the police chief in Kyiv. But this act of bravery stayed with Tanya. Of course, he understand the consequences of his action, but he continued to do that. And this was so powerful action on this roof. You were only 14 years old at the time. What were you thinking? I was curious all my life. And I saw this crowd and then I came closer. I think um, I wasn't an ordinary 14 years old girl. I think it was uh, very dangerous to observe these actions, but it's something that I will never forget. And when you came home, did you tell your parents about it? No, I didn't, because my parents would be very worried about me. I think maybe now even they didn't know that I saw it. Tanya didn't discuss the political situation with her parents at all. Maybe my parents discussed between each other, but not with me. They knew that I'm against all the things, and maybe they don't want to fight with me about that. She kept a lot of things from her parents that year. In early spring, right before the unrest had started in Khorlovka, she joined an outdoor cycling class. A team of eight or nine, all boys except Tanya, that trained outdoors and participated in cycling competitions. Tanya's parents knew about the class. She was, after all, inspired to join it because of her grandfather, who was still cycling long distances into his 70s. What she didn't tell her parents about was an incident that happened a couple of months into the class. An incident that involved a uniform decorated with Ukrainian flag colors given to Tanya when she started the class in March 2014, before the occupation of Khorlevka was underway. Yellow and blue colors. I really liked so much, it was so bright. I think everyone could see me from a very long distance. Sometime in late spring, after occupying forces had already penetrated the area, Tanya decided to wear the Ukrainian flag uniform on a training ride to Donetsk. Tanya says that when she put it on, she wasn't thinking about the Russian-backed separatists she was bound to encounter. Somewhere along the route, a man with a gun stopped her. One of them stopped me 
and said, oh, nice girl, hi. <laughs> uh, hi. <laughs> and he said, oh, so do you support uh, Ukrainians? Do you support the revolution? Tanya looked him straight in the eye and said yes. And I remember he was so surprised, you know. I think he didn't think that I can say yes. Maybe he thought I'm afraid of him or something like that. But I think I just didn't understand the consequences that might happen after this answer. She didn't cower, didn't retreat, didn't realize that she should be feeling scared. He looked at me, he smiled in a very strange way gave me a gesture, like, you can go, and I went. It was only later that Tanya realized how lucky she'd been to get away unscathed. And the moment didn't go unnoticed by her cycling instructor. He told the class that they shouldn't wear the uniform anymore, that there could be real problems if they did. It was one of the last cycling classes Tanya would attend. A few weeks later, Kiev started to retaliate against the occupation. They tried to regain control of the police station, and a lot of people died. A Ukrainian military plane dropped a bomb on the building where Tanya had watched the Ukrainian police chief struggle against the pro-Russian separatists a couple months before. She was at home when she heard the explosion. The sounds were loud and strange and was so close to my apartment. I was very afraid. She watched the air darken with smoke through the window of their apartment. Then her father came and they stood on the balcony. I asked him some ordinary questions. How it happened, why, how a plane can drop bomb. And I felt better. Just this feeling that you're not alone and you're with your father helps you to overwhelm these feelings of stress and anxiety. And just like that, the explosions became a part of everyday life in Khorlovka. Other buildings went up in flames, civilians kept dying, and a sense of anger mounted in Tanya's city. She says that amidst the chaos and propaganda, most Khorlovka residents didn't understand that the Russian government had triggered these events. All they saw was that the authorities in Kyiv had started to bomb them, and they blamed the Ukrainian government for what was happening. They were afraid of their lives, and they just wanted it stopped. As the situation deteriorated, Tanya's mother suggested she get out of town. Tanya called her cousin, and they decided to go to their aunt's house in a village outside Zaporizhia for a couple of weeks. I had small bag and I put inside some very ordinary things. And this small bag, usually in my mind, in my dreams as well, is something special for me because uh, my parents helped me to prepare this. And I remember how I was trying to put everything inside of this bag. And then I was living with these things for quite a long time. It was about seven hours west by train. Tanya says she and her cousin didn't talk about the chaos they were leaving behind. They were just teenagers then, with ordinary things on their minds, like her cousin's boy problems. It was only once they arrived at their aunt's house that the reality started to sink in. We started to watch Ukrainian channels, 
And I think we really started to realize what happened and what is happening around us. They ended up staying most of the summer. Then her cousin had to go back to Donetsk to finish her studies. In early August, Tanya decided to go home too. My bags were near the door and I was prepared to go to my family. But then her father called late that night. He said to me, you will not go home. It was forbidden to come back. The fighting had gotten even worse. He told Tanya that if she returned home, she could be injured or even killed. And so she stayed put. But even though the school year was about to start, she didn't make any plans for it. I thought there is no need to start a new school because I will come back home soon. It's a question of time. Ukraine will gain control over the city again. All of August, she kept checking the list of newly liberated cities and towns. I was waiting every day when my city will be at this list and I can come back home. By the end of the month, Khorlovka still wasn't on that list. And finally, Tanya agreed to enroll in a new school. But the kids there didn't accept her, and she felt emotionally distant from her aunt's family. Lonely, isolated, no one to talk to about her feelings. And she couldn't even discuss the loneliness with her parents. She felt they were enduring enough as it was. She wanted to seem strong. Sometimes, Tanya couldn't get a hold of her parents at all because the phone lines in the Horlovka would go down. She'd stand in the same spot outside her aunt's house, the spot that got the best phone reception, trying to call again and again. One time was especially scary. I couldn't communicate with my parents for two days, and I went out, and it was very cold and rain and gray sky, and I was just trying to call them, you know, to understand that they are alive. And I was calling and calling and calling. But each time she called, the line would go dead. You don't hear nothing, just cut line, cut line, cut line. She was drenched by the time she made it back inside. The next day, her calls finally went through. Her parents were alive, but the trauma of not knowing stayed. You know, it's very painful and difficult when you don't know your loved ones are alive or not. Tanya remained in her aunt's village for two years. Her parents wished they could leave Hordolovka too, to be with her. But it was impossible for them at the time. They had property to deal with, jobs, aging parents. Meanwhile, Tanya's mom was able to visit Tanya at her aunt's. And later, her beloved grandmother came too. But these visits were hard because Tanya knew they inevitably had to say goodbye. Eventually, Tanya left her aunt's village and moved to Zaporizhia proper, enrolling in a university to study finance. During that period, the situation in the occupied territories had gotten much worse. But the explosions in Horlovka were less frequent. And though her parents tried to convince her otherwise, Tanya decided to visit home. Her family found her a driver online, someone they could pay to take her from Zaporizhia across the makeshift border to the occupied territories. Normally, that drive is under five hours, but Tanya says the trip took 15. The driver showed up at 4 a.m. in a black car with tinted windows, picking up Tanya and two Soviet-looking elderly women with huge bags. 
The women ate sausages in the back seat and kept asking the driver questions until he snapped and told them to be quiet. Then they waited for hours on the border to go through the security checkpoints. Once across, Tanya says it was like entering another world. These people in uniforms with guns, soldiers, and you think that they can do with you whatever they want to do. They rode through Donetsk, a city she'd always found vibrant and exciting as a child. But now it looked dismal, gray, hollowed out. Tanya felt relieved when they got on the road to Horlivka, a route she'd always appreciated for the beauty of its natural landscape. But then she saw the billboards, photos of Horlivka's new administrative leaders, the occupiers, wishing the residents a happy holiday. She thinks it was New Year, but can't remember exactly what time of year it was. Tanya says she felt so revolted by the billboards, she couldn't even appreciate the scenery. But when they finally got to her apartment complex, everything was the same. The smell, the atmosphere, the way her parents talked to each other, the objects in her room. She says it was almost like she'd gone out shopping and come back a few hours later. But that was just on the surface. Tanya says she felt a profound sadness when her mother greeted her. She started to say how she missed me, or oh, look at my haircut, emphasizing how all is changing. It was the emphasis on these changes that made her sad. It was like scratching at a raw wound, a blatant reminder that their family had been forced apart. While at home, Tanya tried to do the things she'd always loved, long walks, shopping trips. But each time she went out, she encountered soldiers with guns. She quickly stopped leaving the house alone. The whole trip, she felt like she'd entered the twilight zone. On the one hand, you come back to your home, you see your family, you see your apartments, your school, your friends are alive, you can meet with them if you want. But at the same time, everything has changed. You try to communicate with your family. Even if you're close, you lose this connection and it's difficult to understand each other. And then my friends, a lot of them supported these republics and Russia as well. The life Tanya had lived so happily as a child now felt like a mirage. Only the ghosts remained, and she ached at the sight of those ghosts. I felt how I missed it, how I wanted to be in that place before. Tanya would return to Horlovka a few times over the next several years. The last time for her beloved grandmother's funeral. She'd passed away from cancer. By this point in 2020, Tanya was living in Kyiv and studying law at Taras Shevchenko National University, where she'd been awarded a competitive scholarship. Living there, Tanya finally felt like she had a home. She had friends, people who understood her. And the best part, her parents got their affairs in order and planned to move to the suburbs of Keu to be near Tanya. They were finalizing the plans for the move in the winter of 2022. But then, that February, Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Tanya was sleeping when the first explosion went off. It woke her up, and though it sounded like fireworks, she says she knew exactly what it was without checking the news. After months of thinking a full-scale invasion was impossible, 
Tanya realized that the nightmare had followed her to KU too. She got out of bed and walked over to the window. I had my forehead on the glass and I don't know for how long I was staying like that. And then I went to sleep. I didn't know what to do. Tanya stayed in Kyiv until the middle of March. Because she'd lived through so many explosions in Horlovka, she was able to stay calm, soothing the friends around her who were panicking. When the air raid siren sounded, she didn't even seek shelter. She didn't see the point. Then one night, after receiving a message from a friend urging her to get to safety and offering financial help, Tanya decided to leave on a whim. She packed quickly, grabbed her cat, and found a way to get on a train to Lviv. She spent the next few months in Europe studying for her final university exams and working to launch a mentorship program for young Ukrainians looking to study abroad. During that period, she found out she'd been accepted to Colombia on a displaced student's scholarship. In the summer, she returned to Kyiv to take her law exams. She was there for a month and a half and says she felt crippling anxiety. It was like a different city and her past traumas started to overtake her. In September, Tanya moved to New York and began at Columbia. Now, she's keeping busy, studying hard, working on a memoir about her experiences, and building her mentorship program, which launched in September and has already helped many Ukrainian students. After pouring her own money into the program for months, Tanya recently received a grant. Her parents are still in Khorlovka, under Russian occupation. Her aunt's family, in that village outside Zaporizhia, where Tanya had fled in 2014, spent time under occupation too. The agony of all of it will follow Tanya wherever she goes, but she's trying to heal, and she's hoping that by sharing her experiences and by helping young Ukrainians find mentors abroad, she can help others heal too. Thank you for listening to Voices of Ukraine, a podcast from Columbia University's Harriman Institute. I'm Masha Udenseva-Brenner. This episode was written and produced by me, with editorial guidance from Marko Andrejcik and Nathan Schiller. Our cover art is by Victoria Tentler-Krylov. The music for this series is by Ivan Nebesny, who's still in Ukraine. If you like what you heard, please subscribe tell your friends, and leave us a review. Those really go a long way in helping the podcast. Thanks so much. Until next time. Oh, my God, it's a